Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hello, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, I am happy to have Julie Goldberg here with me in, uh, in the podcast. So thank you and welcome, Julie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Julie, I was going through all of your bona fides, and it's uh, it's it's kind of complicated. You have so many things. Um, I, I know you have a degree in library sciences. I know that you're a published author. I know that you ran for state senate. I know that you're right now a librarian who also uh, picks up some um, some teaching uh, at your school, especially with kindergartners and uh, and people like that. So, if you can, just kind of. Give, give me a little sense of um, of what your background is and uh, and and why you think it's so diverse. I read once that people become librarians because their interests cannot be contained in any one discipline. <laughs> and I, yeah, guilty as charged. Um, I was at at one point in a PhD program in English literature, and I found that it wasn't for me for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and after my second child was born, I thought, well, I don't want to go back to teaching high school English, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll go to law school. Um, and mm-hmm. really, what can I do? At that point, I already had a master's in education. I had a master's in literature. <laughs> I had taught. I had written. I had done a number of things. And I thought, well, it'll either be law school or library school. And I had a very funny conversation with a lawyer friend who told me what he actually does all day. Mm. He said, don't believe the movies. And mm-hmm. after that, I said, well, then I'll be a librarian. And when I got to library school, 20% of my class were former lawyers. So I was like, okay, yeah. good choice. <laughs> no, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I was, a, I was the editor of Lawyer's Digest. I think I was, um, I was 20 years old and, uh, it was uh, it was like a an, a, a, a opportunity for thirty or forty people, you know, a month to tell me why I should never become a lawyer. And, and they would all, you know, they'd all say like, "This this is a great job. How do you do that?" I'm like, "It's it's easy. Just take like a ninety percent pay cut, and you can do what I do." Um, and you know, a, a couple of a couple of uh, maybe a year ago, I had a, a friend of mine who was the general counsel um, of a of a major corporation, and I said. Uh, you know, you're retiring early, retiring young. Why? And he said, you know, Carmen, um, lawyers have like, it's like having nine things in front of you and you can combine them in all these different ways. But essentially you only have nine things. (laughs) He said, I've been doing this for 30 years and there is not a problem I've ever seen that I can't figure out with just putting some of those nine things together. He's like, I'm tired of doing it. So he went off and, uh, you know, uh, ran a marina. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so I think I think there's something about this. Um, I love that librarian um, kind of background because, uh, like you, I I didn't want to go into a PhD program. The thing that killed me was um, having to take old Icelandic in order to. <laughs> I'm like I, I just can't see myself doing that. What in the um, world but, did you want to study that you would have to take old Icelandic? Well, it was a PhD program at uh, at Penn, and uh, when they laid it out, it was old Icelandic, old Norse, um, and and one other Scandinavian language, and and one of them was a requirement, and I just couldn't wrap my head around that. So I I took the the master's program at Rutgers. Um, oh yeah, that's know, what I did. Yeah, yeah, and it was nice. I, I enjoyed it. I um, but I took it because I wanted to study beauty. You know, I just wanted to spend a year and a half, two years doing that. Um, and it sounds like you have an ability to follow your, your interests and your passions. And I, and I want to, how did you get that? How did you get the confidence to say, okay, I've got this thing. I want to study literature and then I want to study education. Um, what got you to that level of, um, kind of interest and confidence? I wish I could interpret that the way that you do, but really, (laughs) (laughs) Circumstances just kept changing. Um, I was from a working class background. I, my, my brother and I were the first to attend college. The Mm -hmm. expectation was you were going to come out of college with a job. 
Um, mm. wasn't really this idea, like you're going to go to college and find yourself. You know, I was, I was a musician. I was a voice major for a while at Rutgers. And my parents said, we're not paying for this. You have to, if you want music, that's fine. You can be a music teacher. And I didn't really want to be a music teacher. And I said, well, I, I'm actually doing better in my English classes than I am in my music classes. Mm. So if I have to be a teacher, I'll be an English teacher. So, you know, I, I'm 50 now and just now that my kids are older, I'm feeling like, oh, you know what? Maybe I do want to go to law school. Maybe I want a PhD mm -hmm. in history. Maybe I want to, you know, there's all of these different, different ways, different ways that my curiosity takes me. Um, when I was running for office, I thought, you know what I need? I need a PhD in public policy because how, how can I possibly be effective either as an activist or as an elected if I don't really have this inside understanding of public policy? And then, of course, mm -hmm. you look at what's going around calling itself an elected official and you think, yeah, maybe not. Um, so um, I am still kind of locked into that early choice because pension and family responsibility. Oh, sure, yeah. So I do actually have to keep doing what I'm doing for several more years. I just recently got a very interesting job offer to go work um, in the New York State Senate um, for a recently elected senator, um, mm. but I couldn't, I couldn't take it. So I have to follow my interests in my off hours. <laughs> and yeah. fortunately, I have an infinite supply of them. <laughs> that's that's the amazing part is that um you know I, I just said this with somebody else you know the the big um the big variable is how you spend your time mm, yeah you know and so that really is kind of the only kind of fungible resource that we that we have um right. so so tell me how you make those decisions you know you've you've written a novel you've uh you know you've published in other ways you've uh you've tackled big issues um you've run you know for for state senate um what's your thought process and and you know with this idea of of allies um i come back to that because you know there are a lot of people out there wondering well how do i engage you know how do i get involved and it seems like um you have a process that you follow and, and once you're confident, you dive in. Um, well, shall I tell you the story of how I wound up running for state Senate? Cause it might answer your yeah. question. Mm -hmm. All right. So 2016, Donald Trump is elected. Um, I'd always been very interested in politics. I was somebody who spent a lot of time opining online uselessly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a lot of interest in politics, knowledge about politics, and strong values about politics, but I really had never gotten very much involved. Um, so the first instinct when Donald Trump is elected is to say, okay, well, who will protect our rights now? Who's going to protect um, women's reproductive freedom? And who's going to protect the environment? And who's going to um, who's going to carry on the project of civilization? So you look to your, your state representatives. And I found out something that I was vaguely aware of but hadn't really gotten to know very well that in New York, we had a, a very bizarre situation where the voters of New York were electing a Democratic majority to the New York State Senate. But there was a small group of senators um, who called themselves the IDC, the Independent Democratic Caucus or Conference, I don't remember now. Um, and they broke off and they, instead of voting for the Democratic leadership, would vote for one of their own members, thus throwing control of the body to the Republicans um, and undermining undermining the Democratic process in New York because that's not what the people had voted for. Come to find out, my very own state senator was one of the members of the IDC. Um, so there was an enormous amount of activism, especially in New York City, but around the state, saying we've got to get rid of these IDC senators because it's life or death now, right? If, if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the Supreme Court, um, if the EPA stops enforcing environmental regulations around the country, we are supposed to be able to depend on our state government and our state government is in the hands of people um, who are perfectly okay with all that. So um, it turned out that every single one of these IDC members had a challenger except for our local guy who was very popular. He's a very personable guy. He made a lot of friends and a lot of people locally had no idea what he was doing up in Albany. So I had gone to a public meeting and they were like, yep, we're getting a candidate. We're getting a candidate. And it was getting on really late. 
Um, it was getting on to February. And one day, in frustration, I wrote on this activist group's Facebook page, who is running against David Carlucci? And they said, we're going to get somebody. We're going to get somebody. I said, you've been saying that for months. If nobody else will run against this guy, I will. And they said, can you meet at Panera in 30 minutes? And I said, okay. Damn. (laughs) I I really thought, surely they have somebody better than me to run for this. So I went to Panera and I met a woman who's since become a very close friend of mine, Suzanne Kernan, and uh, another local activist. And we sat down and we had tea and we talked and they're like, we've got great people. It's just none of them have quite committed yet. And I'm like, listen, I'm sure you have somebody better than a school librarian. Um, You should definitely go with that person. Let me know how I can help. And a bunch of other things happened. And three weeks later, they're like, okay, it's you. And I have a long-standing value that if I say I'm going to do a thing, I do it. And sometimes that's a good quality, and sometimes that's a quality that gets me into trouble. Um, But I thought, well, I said I was going to do it, and now I've got to do it. So that's how I wound up running for state Senate. So as a matter of fact, I knew I didn't have the skills. I knew nothing about running for office, Mm. but I did have confidence because I'm a librarian and because I'm a huge reader and because I'm a writer. um, I know that I have the ability to learn and synthesize and become fluent in new information very quickly. And that's what I did. I kind of gave myself a crash course in New York state government, in policy, in how to run for office, um, in in everything that that you could learn from reading. The things that I was bad at were asking for money because there's nothing that you can read that will make you good at asking for money, either you Mm. are or you aren't. Um, So so that's what happened. And then we wound up getting 46% of the vote. It was nearly an upset, but I was part of the movement that brought down the IDC and returned control of the New York State Senate to Democrats. And in this past election, Democrats now have a supermajority in the New York State Senate. And I feel like I was a part of that. That's amazing. And, and there's a couple of pieces in there that I think are really important for people to understand. Um, the, the thought process where you, where you say, um, you know, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll do it. Um, there's a point when you when you get to your mid forties, uh, nearing fifty, where you look around and you're, you're looking for the adult in the room, and and you can't find them, and you realize, oh, it's me. <laughs> I got to do this. Yep. And I, I think that's the, the the realization when you when you start to touch on politics is that um, there are lots of industries where fake it till you make it um, work. Maybe not surgery, you know, <laughs> I would say, you know, like high wire acrobat, probably not. Um, but politics is definitely one of them. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you when you get involved in behind the curtain, you realize there are, you know, just a few types. There's the type that does this so they can stay in power. You know, there's a type who really wants to affect a particular amount of change. There are people who want it for personal advantage. But if you come in pure, um, you do have a way of resonating with people. You know, how was what was what did you learn from that experience in reaching out to so many people and just listening to them? Well, one of the things I I learned so much. I, I say that I got uh, like a master's degree in in political science in you know just a few months. Um, One of the things I learned that really bothers me to this day, and I I haven't figured out yet what to do about it, is that people have very little idea how they're governed. And Mm. I I always get annoyed when people say, why don't they teach civics anymore? Why don't they teach science anymore? Why don't they teach critical thinking anymore? We teach it all. (laughs) But Mm. once people leave school, they get to think with their very own brains and decide what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. Mm. And one of the things I learned was that people had no idea why they should vote for their state senator. They did not know what was the job of their village or town council, what was Mm -hmm. the job of their assembly person, what was the job of their senator. You know, I mean, there are people that vote for president once every four years and consider themselves outstanding citizens, which I'm sure they Mm are. Um, But they didn't know why they should care. So a lot of my job as a candidate was not explaining to people why they should vote for me versus my opponent, but why 
they should care enough to figure out what the difference was between me and my opponent and use their vote to 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 back up that decision. Hmm. So, you know, that's funny that you do that because you take the onus off of you if you you shift the discussion, you know, in terms of how you can help people become better informed. And it's hard to put your ego forward and say, you know, listen to me. It's like it's like telling somebody, you know, listen to me, think independently. You know, <laughs> there's a problem. Yes. <laughs> there's an inherent <laughs> contradiction. But if you if you do say, you know, here's the situation and let me explain to you why these things are important. Um, it is about self-interest. And it is one of the few times that you can be truly selfish, um, you know, and think about what you want in that representative. Why do you think – People don't understand that. What's well, missing? Well, there's a lot of things that's missing. One of them is the decline of, of local news um, mm. and all kinds of local media. So there's, you know, it used to be that you would get a paper, a once a week local paper or a daily local paper, and mm -hmm. it would be filled with what's going on at all levels of government. And because of, because of, what the internet did to journalism, um, and because the fact that nobody can figure out a business model for bringing local news, you know, people are watching CNN or they're watching Fox or they're watching MSNBC, and they can tell you all about what you know somebody else's Congress critter is doing. You know, there are people in New York who can tell you all about what they think about Maxine Waters. I actually had a voter say to me, like, "Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to vote for you. Tell me what you think about Maxine Waters." I'm like, "Well, the first thing I can tell you about Maxine Waters is that she's not in New York." Um, yeah. So, so people are part of this kind of national reality show that we call news. And that, by mm. the way, predates Donald Trump. He is not, he's, he's the product of that. He's not the cause of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people want to feel informed and they want to feel like responsible citizens. So if they turn on CNN and they find out all kinds of things that are going around in the nation, it doesn't occur to them to say, oh, but you know what? I have absolutely no idea what's going on in my town yeah. or with my county representatives. Um, and therefore, I'm not really well informed about the people who make most of the decisions that affect my life. I, I also, after I ran for state senate, ran for county legislature in a race that I was like, you know, demographically destined to lose. But whatever, <laughs> I did it, um, and that was um, that was that has to do with gerrymandering, kids. Um, but anyway, they. Um, I mean, it's, you think it's hard to explain to people what the state does. Try explaining to people what their county legislature does. Yeah. Right? Like, I would go, I'd knock on a door and I'd say, you know, could I have your vote? And they'd say, well, where do you stand on abortion? I'd say, well, the county legislature has nothing to do with abortion. I am pro-choice. But let me tell you about our roads, bridges, and sewers in this county. <laughs> you know? I was, was going to bring that up. That's, that's the <laughs> only thing I can point to. I can tell a county road versus a local road by the number of potholes. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, your county, I mean, there's huge social justice issues connected with the, with counties as well. For example, yeah. your county sheriff's office runs your county jail, mm. right? Who is yeah. in your county jail? In, in my county, I think currently 70% of the people being held in the county jail are there um, on bond. Um, because, sorry, because they because they can't make because yeah, they can't sure. they can't make bail, um, yeah. and that's and of course we've passed bail reform in New York, so some of those people there are there's a reason why there's bail for them, um, but you know people might know that they have a county jail, they might know where their county jail is, but they mm -hmm. may not know anything about how it's operated um, or what kind of thing goes on there, or if there's any abuses going on there. So that's county. Your social services. I, I, somebody I know who's worked in in county. Um, affairs for a long time said, the county is where you go when you're out of options, like your mm. mental health services, mm -hmm. um, your meals on wheels, all these kinds of just bread and butter things are handled through your county. And most people cannot tell you the first thing about their county government. Yeah, that's I mean, that, that's amazing that, you know, again, the, the civic mindedness that you have. Um, there's, there's a couple of things here. One, I, I just read recently, somebody said, uh, fall in love with losing. Oh, yes. You'll you'll really have an interesting life if 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 that fear of failure and losing is removed. Mm. And you know, I've taken jobs, I've done things because uh, I thought it would be a great story. Mm. You know, it's kind of how I got into 
the corporate environment was by accident. It was kind of almost a dare to myself, like, could I get inside of that and see how it worked? Mm. Um, you said you came from a working class background. Yes. Like like you, my father and, and mother were, you know, really keen on, I had to graduate college. I had to mm. do something. They had no idea what I was going to do with this, these two degrees. I started as um, a computer science major mm. and and then we all agreed universally across the entire department that I should not be there. Um, <laughs> I think it was one of the few things that everyone agreed on. Um, oh. But but once once I moved into political science and and English, I had no idea of what job I could have. But what I could say is that I was a good writer, right. and I would use that. What did you do to? to get through that and start to, to get into position where it was okay to take these types of risks, you know, even if it's still that you're, you know, you've been with a school district for a long time, you have a pension, et cetera, but you were jumping into the deep end of lots of different things. I think I realized, well, when I first got involved in the state Senate race, mm -hmm. the consensus, just like the consensus in your computer science department was that, that I didn't have a chance that mm -hmm. we were, I was really running just to really to help bring down the IDC to make voters in Rockland and Westchester County aware of what was going on with their representative in Albany um, mm. and to, to be part of this movement. There was never any expectation that I could win. In fact, it wasn't until the last two weeks of the campaign that we started, you know, looking at the that the responses we were getting and saying, "Oh my God." We could win, um, <laughs> and I had a I had a long conversation with um, a somewhat intoxicated um, person who was in, in control of a lot of money that could have come into my campaign from um, from certain activists in New York, and he mm -hmm. kept me on the phone till two in the morning, saying some variety of "If we'd had any idea how well you were doing, we would have <laughs> thrown money at this race, and you'd be a senator now." I'd be like. That's great. Can I go to bed now? Um, oh. But um, it's I I didn't I didn't cry when I lost. Mm -hmm. I feel like I did not cry because I had not expected to win in the first place. What we wanted to do was let people know what was happening in their names, make people care, get them involved, get them to understand, and get them to to kind of stand up for their rights as voters. Mm -hmm. um, and we succeeded magnificently in that. It also served as a catalyst to bring together a lot of small progressive organizations throughout the county that weren't necessarily in communication with each other. So, hmm. you know, in this past election, I saw some people running in local races. And just like I had admired some women in local races before this who had run good campaigns but lost, um, I realized like, okay, people look at me and they say, Hey, if she can do it, I can too. And that to me is such a triumph. Sure. I mean, well, it, not, not to, um, you know, I'll, I'll say something different though. Mm -hmm. um, you may not have as clear a vision of how impressive you were in that situation. Um, you know, you're, you, you don't stop thinking. No. So, you know, when, <laughs> when, when there's an issue and I remember a couple of car rides in the morning talking to you about, you know, well, how do you, what do you do with this and how do you do with that? And is there anything I can do to help? Mm -hmm. And I was amazed at your absorption rate. Mm. And so when you, when you think about that, you know, what are the two or three things that you would recommend for somebody, um, if they're not sure they can do it. I mean, and, and especially around that idea of maybe it's for the experience, you know, oh, it's not necessarily for the win. I would encourage almost anybody who cares to do it because there are, you know, there's, there's somebody I met through political circles who comes from a, comes from a political family, very bright, very capable and keep saying every time I see her, I'm going to run when I'm ready. When I'm really ready, I'll know it. And then I'll run. Mm. And I just said, the only way to get ready is to run. You, yep. The only way you're going to learn to do these things is to do them. You know, like I had a debate on television with my opponent and I actually felt sorry for him by the end of it because, you know, 
I don't know what he thought. Like, oh, there's a very short librarian who's running against me in this seat that I've held for eight years. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can, I know every man, woman, and child in this county, but, you know, I guess I'll have to go on TV. And I tore him to shreds in this <laughs> nicely, nicely. But I called him out on every, every half truth that he'd been getting away with in the county. And how did I get ready for that? You know, I practiced with people in my campaign, um, one of whom had been his high school social studies teacher. Um, wow. And yeah. Um, and I, you know, we talked about, you know, we outlined every possible issue that could come up and what possible responses would be. But honestly, until I was there under those very hot lights in that studio, mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do that. Now, if somebody said, hey, will you debate somebody on TV? I'd be like, all right, I can do that. But there was, until I did it, there was no way of knowing. So if, if, if somebody thinks that they would like to run for office, they should do it. <laughs> they should mm -hmm. do it. Um, there are so many resources now for ordinary people who want to run for office. Um, uh, uh, Amanda Littman's organization, Run for Something, um, which unfortunately is only for women under 40, so I didn't qualify, but all their <laughs> material is available I didn't, uh, for, for help. Um, the, um, the, the New York the New York Teachers Union had workshops for candidates. I actually didn't get to go to it before, but I went to it afterward. And mm -hmm. it really was everything you needed to know, you know, legally and everything you needed to know about building a campaign and using using data to drive your campaign decisions. It was, yeah. it was all in there. So the resources are available. Um so what did you ask me? You asked me like, what are the no, three no, things? I mean, that, no, it's okay. I mean, you're, you're saying it, you're, you're listing them off. And I, and yeah. I think that that's the, the thing for me with allies is that I, I come back to the idea that you're, you're trying to connect people to a world they may not know. Mm. And, um, you know, you're, you're trying to show them that civic engagement or, um, or issues management or issues engagement is not something that other people do. And, right. and you watch, you know, it's a, it's a participatory activity and it's not that hard to get involved. And I think that's the part, um, that's the part that people need to understand, but I want to go back. Um, I want to go back again, not just for the Senate, mm -hmm. but for kind of the, the, the broader way you engage. Um, you have a, uh, an interesting background in terms of faith and, you know, you've you've got kind of both sides of the the Jewish faith and the Catholic faith. Um, how do you how do you think that impacted your interest in being involved? You know, if you think about the Jewish faith and the idea that they, you know, there's a commitment there to make things better. You know, do you do you see that informing how you approach things, or is it something that's just kind of part of how you grew up? Well, I grew up. I grew up Catholic. Uh, my mom is Catholic. My late father was Jewish, um, but the children were raised Catholic, as was the custom at the time. Um, and it it was, you know, I I really find the Catholic Church these days unrecognizable to the church I thought I was growing up in in the seventies and eighties. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like the church I grew up in was a social justice church, and that the Beatitudes were important and the corporal works of mercy were important and the spiritual works of mercy were important. And to translate that to a non-Catholic audience, that's the list of things you need to do to, you know, to be a decent person. Yeah. Um, so feed the sick, I mean, you know, if you know, like feed the hungry and house the homeless. And like those were not presented as options. Those were presented as responsibilities. So, there, I have, you know, I've left everything about Catholicism behind theologically, mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, even a lot of things about Christian, most things about Christianity theologically, but but the the message that you have a responsibility to other people was was ingrained in me at an early age, and then when I um, when I grew up and when I married my husband and we joined a Reconstructionist synagogue. Mm -hmm. um, and they recognized patrilineal descent, so I was part of that congregation. Um, I was certainly, you know, found, found very similar things in in Judaism, but with a, a different twist. the The idea in Judaism is is tikkun olam, which is that God God already did God's part in creating the world, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's your job 
to finish the work. It's everybody's yeah. job to finish the work of creation and the perfection of creation. And that that is that is an extraordinarily useful idea. Well, I mean, those are two really powerful constructs. And I, and I agree with you. If people spent more time focusing on the Beatitudes uh, rather than the Ten Commandments, you'd have a much more empathetic kind of view of religion. Yeah. And and I think that there's there there are a couple of themes that I've seen over and over come up. And the one that I want to want to kind of dive in, and uh, some of it has to do with the Me Too movement. Some of it has to do with um, the way that people process information around. Black Lives Matter or or other kind of um, social justice and societal issues. And it has to do with empathy. If, if you can put yourself in the place of another and feel what you believe they're feeling, then you can share in their passion to change something. But if you don't do that, I find that there's a group of people that really don't care about an issue until something happens to them or someone close to them. Yeah. And, and, and that I've seen, I don't know if it's been hiding and I haven't seen it or if it's getting worse. Um, but that's one of the things that frankly angers me Yeah. that, that you can see people saying, you know, the mask thing is, is, is one part of it, you know, I'm young or I'm healthy. Um, I'll do fine. But there's all kinds of other pieces, you know. Um, you know, people don't believe that you know you you can be jobless until they're jobless. You know, people don't believe that you know you can. There can be a you know catastrophic accident in your family that puts you in you know uh, bankruptcy because of you know medical coverage. All those things. What do you think is is driving things like that? And um, I don't I don't know I don't know if if you've thought about that at all. So let's talk about that on a, an individual scale. And then let's talk about mm-hmm. that on a societal scale and, you know, a lax, a last Marxist scale. So mm-hmm. personally, a lot of people have no imagination. They just don't. Right. So, so to be healthy and in a safe home and with enough to eat and comfortable and secure, you have to have an imagination to say, what would it be like to be insecure? What would it be like to be hungry? What would it be like not to be sure that I will be okay next week and that my kids will be okay next month and next year? And there mm-hmm. really are people who have no imagination. And 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 for people like that, it, it, it is great if they have some sort of religious belief system, which says, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I have no idea what it's like to be hungry, but you know, Jesus said, you got to feed the hungry, so I better get on it. You know, so um, if you if you don't have that kind of imagination, you probably do need a code of conduct. Um, <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a broader scale, I think one of the problems is that we have a very insecure society. We have vast income inequality. We have vast racial disparities. We have um, a system that keeps people scared and in debt um, Mm. and constantly worried about looking out for for themselves and, and for other people. And this is not, this is not people individually being selfish. This is people saying, you know, people who can certainly imagine being less secure than they are saying, I got to focus on me and mine. You know, I think if we had an economy that offered more basic security to Mm. everyone, you'd find that people could free up a little emotional space to Mm. be more concerned about other people. Well, how, how did that happen? I mean, you know, coming out of World War II, you, you know, we had, you know, and, and the Depression, we had the beginnings of a social safety net. We had uh, that type of prosperity. Um, and then it, it kind of slowly started to erode. And I, and I agree with you. You know, one of the biggest fears I have with my kids is, you know, what it takes to be um, secure in yeah. this society, how to do that absent, you know, maybe some of the advantages that we used to have. Yeah. I mean, one of my children has a disability Mm -hmm. and I do not know how she will be safe and all right in this world. I don't know. I don't know what kind of future she's going to have. And it's terrifying. 
Mm-hmm. Um, how how this happened was, you know, <laughs> I blame Newt Gingrich, but I'm sure he's not the only person to blame. <laughs> um, you know, we just have this. We we had a fictional economic idea that pulled well, and the fictional economic mm-hmm. idea is trickle down economics. That if the if the the wealthiest are doing well, then all of us will do well. A rising tide will lift all boats. And there has never, I mean, it's kind of, I, one thing I didn't realize, I think, until about, you know, five or 10 years ago was I always knew, eh, that's not true. Trickle down economics isn't true. But I assumed that there must be something to it for people to keep running campaigns on it and building yeah. budgets on it, right? And and then, I don't know, uh, in, well, sometime in the last five years, I read an article that actually spelled it all out, the economic history of the post-war period. It's like, oh, wow, that's never been true. Like it's never, not even once. It was. No. It has never been the case that if you you cut tax rates for wealthy people, that they will use that money to create jobs and and then everybody will be better off. Like it is, it is actually fiction. You know, I'm yeah. I'm an agnostic, and I would say there's more evidence for the existence of God than there is for for trickle down economics. Like we know that's not going on. Yeah, yeah, and I and I I read a I read several things. Um, around that concept that were more um, real politic based that said um, this was an excellent argument for people who wanted to shift massive amounts of wealth to a few people. Oh yeah. And so from a, from a purely selfish standpoint, you know, once you, once you can fake sincerity, everything becomes easy. Um, and, and I, when I saw that in black and white and really saw the, the actual uh, references of what these politicians were saying and what business people were doing, um, it, it chilled me. And it was when I lost my, um, my naivete around politics. Uh, and hey, this is, did this happen about four years ago? Oh, no, no, no. This happened 20 years ago. Okay. And, yeah. Uh, I was a consultant <laughs> and I, and I did some things that had to do with Washington. And in part of the research we were doing around lobbying, it was when the telecoms were breaking up. Um, you know, we, we could see that all these companies were going private and we could see all of these uh, politicians were angling to be involved in how the companies were formed. Mm. And it was very interesting to see, you know, 9X and, uh, and Bell Atlantic come together in that merger or, um, you know, the gas companies. And, mm-hmm. and, and these, it was the same thing that happened with Russia with the rise of the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, you think they're just creating a company, but what they're doing is creating a wealth base for a small number of people. Right. And, and I, you know, I've seen those things and, um, and, and yet from, from my personal perspective, it was always hard for me to figure out, well, how do I, how do I make a difference? Mm-hmm. And so I, I I come back again to to your rotating range of interests, and and I because you know we 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 talk and we we, we share information on social media et cetera and and I and I see you know you doing what I do which is I, I do some things for a year or two and I and I accomplish what I can there and then I pivot and say well now I'm going to try and move this piece of my life my interests forward. What advice would you give to people who have multiple things that they find important in their life? What have you learned about that ability to shift gears and shift focus? I think I must be still learning it because I don't know how to answer that question. I, um, I started therapy about a year ago and then dropped Mm -hmm. it when the pandemic came along to actually try to answer that question. And the way, you know, the reason I finally said, okay, I need help with this was that I became keenly aware. I mean, I'd always, you know, I'm half Irish and half Jewish. I am a little bit morbid. Um, So, you know, I've always been keenly aware that I'm going to die. And it was more like, okay, I'm going to die. I'm definitely going to die. I don't know how long I have. What do I want to do with the time I have left? especially because I have all these interests and all these things that I want um, Mm. and things that I've, especially things I've gotten close to achieving, but then failed to achieve, which has been a pattern throughout my life. Um, And that was what I wanted. And it took me, it took me like three sessions to explain to the therapist that that was why I was there, that I wanted her (laughs) to help me figure out what to do 
with a hungry brain and however much time I have left on the earth and whatever energy I still have at my age. I mean, that's, well, first of all, smart to go to a therapist and ask those questions because, you know, I, I think that's brilliant. And when I've spoken to them, I, I love the idea of, you know, here's a person who has a skill set, but not a vested interest in you. Yeah. So <laughs> I can just say, yeah, that's probably a bad idea. And I, and I love the idea of them saying, you know, you really thought that out. Um, but, but the, the concept of, um, time management and focus. Um, that's the part that I find so fascinating. Is there a formula? Because it sounds like you have one that says, if you can get over the fact that you might fail at this, and if you can find a value in the trying, then it's worth doing. And if you don't, if you're not an expert in it, at least you'll learn more by trying it than you will by standing on the outside and looking at it. Yeah. How'd you do that? How'd you come well, up with have, that process? I, mean, I have ADHD and mm. I'm, and I'm very likely on the autism spectrum. And mm. one of the things that people with ADHD do is they obsess about things for a period of time <laughs> and they go very deeply into it. We, we do deep dives into subjects. We hyper-focus um, and then we kind of move on. And I think my challenge right now at my age is to figure out what do I not want to move on from? Mm. You know, like I can spend a few, like, you know, the other day I got really interested all of a sudden in historiography and I spent several hours reading all about historiography. Okay, whatever. I'm not going to, not going to change my life and throw it all away and be a historiographer. Um, but the, what's meaningful to me right now is, is environmental activism and women's rights activism. Um, I'm on the board of Planned Parenthood, Hudson Peconic. Um, I was active in my local Sierra Club. I, due to some family concerns, I haven't been able to do that more. I want to get back into doing that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm active in a uh, local um, criminal justice reform organization. And I want to, the question I ask myself all the time now is, what can I give my energy to? What is worth my energy? What needs my energy? Right. And mm-hmm. so that's one thing. And then I, I, I have not been writing fiction for a while. That's one of the things that I'm hoping to get back to in the new year. That is worth my energy. That is writing is always instructive. Writing is always giving you its own feedback. I've never sat down to write mm-hmm. where I haven't learned something. I'm constant. And I love to learn. So writing is mm-hmm. like a way of teaching myself. Yeah, I, I think that's the same with me too. Writing is is how I teach myself what I believe, and yeah. and I can't tell you what's going to come out, but when it does, it's it's like, hmm, that's a confirmation. Um, you know, like you, I, I I don't know if I've never been diagnosed ADHD, but I do notice that the the profile fits me because mm-hmm. I'm an, I'm an additive learner. So if I'm in a meeting, I may not take notes because the pieces of information that I'm hearing, I'm connecting to something else in my brain, and once I connect them, I don't forget them. Right. And that makes me have an ability to see patterns that other people don't see. And I notice that people yes. with ADHD do that. Yes. And and it's a it's a magic trick uh-huh. to people who don't do it. <laughs> and um and that part I I see in you a lot. You know, when I think about the AMP stories and um and there are a couple that you that you that you threw out to some some people to read and the the detail and the depth and the the emotional underpinning is is amazing and I learned a lot from that you know I think I'm I'm uh, almost halfway through a, a screenplay that's kind of loosely based on my grandmother who was married six times to five guys oh wow and um yeah and she you know the, the fourth and the and the sixth uh, she married twice um and to put myself in the position of a woman who was born in uh, you know, the 1910s and how she must have gone through that process forces a level of empathy and understanding that I wouldn't naturally have. And I, and I see in the way that you approach writing in that learning is it's a chance for you to explore kind of the, the emotional side of lives that you may not experience. Yes. I got that from acting training. So hmm. when I was in high school, and by the way, this is also 
the key to what little political success I have had. Um, when I was in high school, we were incredibly fortunate that we had a real live actor, director, and theater teacher. Um, this was his day job. Teaching English and drama in our high school was his day job. And wow. in the evenings, he would be directing small um, small productions in, in New York. He composed for the stage. He was, he was an incredibly talented man. And I, it's funny, I'm, I'm cleaning out my mom's house and I just found all of my notes from that class. And <laughs> since, since the time I took that class in high school, my daughter has had training at the Stella Adler studio in oh, wow. New York. Right. And I'm looking in the notes and I was like, wow, he was really giving us the complete method acting training. Like he did not hold anything back. He, he did not wow. say these are a bunch of like suburban kids from Farallon, New Jersey. I'll give them like, I'll, I'll give it to them you know, the easy <laughs> way. I mean, he, you know, other than taking out anything that might be inappropriate for teenagers in the 1980s, he, uh, yeah. he gave us the whole thing. And one of the things I learned in that class, and this is, by the way, how I wrote the A&P stories, um, mm -hmm. for every character we portrayed, we had to write a very thorough character study. And mm -hmm. it was involving things, you know, that are not in the text, like whatever's not in the text, you have to make up to build the character. So, you know, mm -hmm. What is this character's favorite sandwich? You know, um, um, where does this character hurt in their body? Like you'll notice in the AMP story, there's almost always something about like the physicality of it. That's because mm -hmm. I made these really elaborate character templates, and I just asked myself about a hundred something questions about each yeah. character, and and that was how they revealed themselves to me. Like I didn't know the answer until I wrote it, and um, and so that acting training is a training in empathy and imagination, mm -hmm. um, and that's where the fiction comes out of. You know, I just I just write myself into somebody else's life, if, mm -hmm. if possible, um, and say, well, if I were this person, what would I think? What would I feel? How would I react to this? And that's that's how that's what actors do. And then mm -hmm. when I was running for office, I felt like I was portraying a character called the candidate. And it gave me the confidence to get up on stage and perform as the candidate. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, um, but Mr. Ratson was teaching me to be a teacher, to be a writer, and to be a political candidate. Well, see, that's the that's the point that I that I was kind of going toward. There were a couple of things in there that I think are amazingly important. One is the the value of the arts and humanities. Yes. And I, and I feel like there's a bit of a sea change here um, because people are starting to understand without, you know, social sciences and humanities, you're missing the human impact. And just going towards STEM removes kind of the, the implications of technologies and science, yes. you know, the not just can we, but should we debate. Right. Um, you know, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a bad example, but it actually is, is pretty brilliant. Um, Meryl Streep. Mm -hmm. says that she has one thing about every character that she never tells anyone. And she does the entire method, backstory, et cetera. And there's one in the um, bridges of Madison County. And they, they got her to explain the hidden thing. She never even told Clint Eastwood, who was the director. Mm -hmm. It was that she thought she had a big butt. <laughs> and, and it was great. It was brilliant. Because if you watch the movie and you know this, and she said, now – I've never told anybody this, but if you watch that movie, every time I walk away from him, I put my hands on my hips or my butt. And what I'm really trying to do is as I'm walking away, I'm trying to make my butt look smaller to him. And, <sighs> and it's that sense of vulnerability and, um, and, and kind of um, nervousness that she has that once you see that and you watch the movie, you're like, that's brilliant. That's a piece of kind of natural theater that everyone does, you yeah. know, and I, and I think that, so when I, when I go back to what you were, what you were saying, what I, what I love about that is, is that the, the method is really about understanding people. Right. And, and I think that's the, the, the thing that crystallizes this entire discussion for me. And the reason why I think I like talking to you about these issues is that you have a constant interest in peeling that onion yes. and understanding the layers and why some things are hidden and why there's a, a reveal. And I see it in the way you talk to people in that you're, you want to understand how they feel. You know, when we, when we had the, um, the feast of the epiphanies and we were, and we were talking about, you know, someone 
close to that group who had died. Mm-hmm. You know, I could see what you, you know, some of what you were doing was trying to help people express their grief and asking them questions so that they could feel like they were heard. Yeah. And, and, and I go back again and say, you know, that idea of being heard, why, why do we need that more? And, and, you know, as a, as a woman, as a teacher, as a, as a researcher, why do you think now we're, we're thinking so much about that need to be understood and heard? Well, I think because we've seen what happens when people don't feel heard. Mm. We live in a violent time. We live in a callous time. And some, you know, these things are, as we say in the humanities, um, overdetermined. There's a lot of reasons mm. for it. But people don't feel heard. And we also, there's this very, even if you're a woman, we live in a very macho kind of culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're going to be successful, you have to charge on ahead and you have to, <laughs> you know, you can't cry at work. And um, I think people do need invitations. I mean, obviously, you and I are not people who need invitations to speak, but yeah. a lot of people, but a lot of people are. A lot of people need to be asked the question that unlocks their story. I mean, something that I do a lot when I'm talking to someone I don't know very well is I'll say, so what are you working on? And mm-hmm. that's a, it's, it's a good question because they get to define it however they want. You know, oh, I'm working on this new project at work, or I'm working on understanding who my father really was, or, <laughs> I'm, or I'm working on, you know, I'm thinking I might want to choreograph a ballet, you know, like it, but people do need those invitations because, you know, Social media, there's also a, a certain amount of pressure to be cool and sophisticated and mm. and shiny. And people more than ever now need an invitation to to show their humanity rather than their surface. <laughs> I think that's um, that is a pretty profound insight. And I'm going to take, you, you just, you just raised something that I'm actually going to wind up writing about later um, <laughs> because it was so, it, it kind of hit me in, in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. Um, we don't have that much time left. So I want to, I want to end as we, as I normally do with um, just two very simple questions. So what, and now what? So the, so the, so what um, is, so with all of this happening in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of dramatic social change, in the changeover in generations of uh, people, with the with the vast inequities, with you know, in in some ways, it, tremendous extension of uh, of life and uh, use of technology. So what? What? Why does all of that matter? And and how do you engage in in that kind of cacophony of 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 things? You have to find your mission field in that nobody can pay attention to all of that. Nobody can possibly affect all of that. What people need to do is find the issue that they're going to work on. Mm-hmm. And instead of taking all that, you know, because our media culture invites us to be diffuse and disorganized and to have our, our awareness everywhere. And what the, it's, a, it's the discipline of this is to say, no, some of that I'm going to have to tune out because I am a person who's going to work on criminal justice reform issues, or mm-hmm. I am a person who is going to write a ballet, or I am a person who is, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and not forever, right? I like to sure. switch around topics, but at least we have to, to, to retrain our attention to something that is is meaningful and hopeful for ourselves and for our communities and for the world. Because you can't do anything about 99% of the, the issues that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. but you can have a real impact in your community on, on one of them. So now what? What you're working on, Jolie? <laughs> well, I'm at a really interesting point in my life because um, – I have an elderly parent who's going through a lot, and much of my focus over the last several months and for the next several months is is going to be on her. Mm-hmm. Um, I still want to figure out 
where the best use of my political energies is because I thought I could do maybe three. And now I think maybe I can do one well. I am learning to say no. I said no to a great opportunity like two weeks ago mm-hmm. and it hurt and it was great because I knew it it wasn't something I could do a good job at and I knew there were better people for it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it wasn't going to answer something in me. And there was other invitations that I have to work on things that would. So <laughs> that's part of the discipline is saying no. Um, what's next for me is I want to finish writing my AMP novel and I mm-hmm. want to get it out into the world because I have a Google Doc called Stories That Are Not AMP Stories to Write and I would like to write some of them. <laughs> And there are a lot of them, Carmen. There are a lot of stories there. I, I believe me. I, I have I have no doubt that there's a lot there. I can I can I can hear sometimes how you're banking them, um, and and I understand. I I get it because you know there there are sometimes you have to th- that issue of focus. I think that's maybe where I'll where I I'll end. Um, the I get it all the time. I know you get it all the time. Um, you know I've talked to. Jeremy Abbott, he said it too. We we have opportunities to get involved in things, and we make those choices to focus. And um, I love I love that feeling. So the the, the last thing I want to I want to ask you is when it comes to allies, um, and you think about the focus. Um, what's the one thing you would tell somebody who sits on the sidelines and waits? You know, what does it take to t- to to make make the focus become a focused action? So, well, tell me more about this person on the sidelines. Is this a person with no knowledge, and no interest, or is this a person? No, I think it's I think it's somebody who probably has an interest. It might be a newly sparked interest. It might be somebody who has a skill set that uh, is applicable to a different industry or a different pursuit. But you know, uh, maybe they're maybe they're maybe they're um, they they don't have the traditional background or education or, you know, think that's not something somebody like me could get involved in. Uh, okay. I see. So, so where I am, many, many activists are not necessarily people who are educated or well-off or privileged in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, they're the ones who are on the ground doing the real work. I would say the first thing you do is never think you have to invent any kind of activism. Like, honestly, I think there's almost for if if nobody started a new organization for five years, we'd be just fine because every organization I know, whether it's a community service organization or an activist organization working on a social justice issue, mm-hmm. they don't need new sister organizations. They need people who are willing to show up and do the work, right? So the first thing is stop reinventing the wheel, look around, ask questions, find out who is already doing the work in your community because it is shocking the number of people who are doing that work. And some of them are doing it, you know, with very few resources and all alone. Um, Find out who's doing the work. Come in ready to listen, not to direct, right? Show up with a spirit of service, not with a spirit of, well, I come from this great background and let me come in here and tell you how to run your organization that you've been running for 15 years on a shoestring budget, right? Come in with a spirit of humility and say, your work is integral to all of our survival. Your liberation is tied up with my liberation. How can I serve this? And the other thing I would say is find the oldest person you know who's involved in this work because those people know everything. It's astonishing what they know. The people who have been working on, for example, in my area, environmental issues for the last 30 years, there is nothing they don't know and they're really looking to pass it on to a new generation because they know they're not going to be here forever to do this work. That's it. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, the, I can't end better than that. Um, yeah. Praise, praise to old people, praise to experienced people. Um, I just had an hour and a half conversation with somebody who is uh, brilliant at what I do for a living and, um, and the confidence and the depth of his thinking uh, amazes me every time I speak with him. Um, so thank thank you, Julie. And and you may not realize this, but the 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 breadth of of what you do and how you think is uh is astonishing. Um it's just it's very impressive. So thank, thank you, you for that. I really do enjoy um 
living vicariously through all of the amazing things you dive into, um, which, which, you know, is, is, is a really good way to do it. Um, so much somebody like you do it. Um, so thank you I, so much for, for having me on these. You asked me about all the things I love to talk about. So this was such a, such a pleasure. Can, can we do it again next week? Yes. Anytime. <laughs> Look, I'm happy. We'll just, uh, we don't even have to record it. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, that's the intent, right? Is, um, it, sharing that matters to people and the concentric circles that kind of flow out from that. I've, I've, I've been amazed at the, the people who poked their heads up and said, Hey, I've, I've never listened to these things before. Um, that person is fascinating. So I know I'm going to get a lot of great feedback, um, from this. I was, uh, I was really impressed with the the wisdom that you have. So thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. Talk to you soon. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have today uh, for Allies. I want to thank Julie again. Um, If you have any questions for Julie, um, send them our way and we'll uh, come back and uh, get the answers to those. And as always, if you have ways that we can improve the program, we'd love to hear it. And uh, if you have people we should talk to that you think uh, would be interesting and a good fit for uh, the Allies podcast, please let me know. We're always looking for people to talk to. So this is Carmen Farino, and thank you for listening to Allies, and we'll talk to you soon.